Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. Today we are speaking to Professor Jonathan Morris from the University of Hertfordshire about the history of coffee. Now I'm really excited. This is a personally, uh, personally or personal topic that I'm really, really interested in as I, I drink a lot of coffee, as a lot of my followers know. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast, Jonathan. How are you doing? Yeah, uh, I'm doing great, Jackson. It's a, it's a bit unfortunate we chose the hottest day of the year on which to talk about coffee, but let's go for it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> and I hope people are, are cooling down whilst listening to this, or may, at least it's cooler when they're listening to this. Now, yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> now, firstly, you know, the history of coffee is a is a very niche historical topic, uh, and I wanted to ask you, how did you initially get interested in the history of coffee? Yeah, well, it's um, two elements to the story there. Uh, but the the key one is that I am started out my career as a historian of modern Italy. And um, so I obviously studied in Italy. I lived in Italy for a while I was doing the studies. And um, I got to start drinking coffee when I was in Italy. And I got into coffee then. Uh, and I really got into the coffee lifestyle. And then... Um, you know, a few years later, when the same sorts of what I would now call Italian style coffee started appearing in the UK, it occurred to me, well, this would be an interesting history, really to do and to watch. And after sort of uh, a few years, I was able to find a grant that enabled me to do just that and to, to start a, a, a project into the history of the spread of espresso, uh, the kind of the transnational uh, Italian sort of coffee culture. So that was really what started me off. Uh, but I was just going to go back to your point about being a niche subject, because in one sense, that's true. But in another way, actually, the thing that I've realized about coffee is it's, it's a huge subject. And it kind of enables you to do a different thing as a historian. So like I said, I was a historian of Italy, modern Italy. So I did about, you know, 150 years of Italy, maximum one country. With coffee, we're talking six, 700 years globally. And in a way, the, that gives you many different things to examine. And as a historian, it's quite liberating because it allows you to really go back to sort of finding everything interesting and going down many, many different avenues and using coffee as the kind of um, lingua franca, if you like, that enables you to get into all of those things. That's a really fascinating story of how you, how you got into it just from a personal interest. And then that that grant you were able to find as well that's that's awesome and you know like, like you said as historians we like finding those those things we're interested in and, and tracking back and i do find that really interesting you were able to find that area of history to go and indulge in now coffee as you've just said is a is a big part of history it has a long story but where does the story of coffee begin yeah, so this is uh, quite a complicated one too. So we can start by saying where coffee grows wild and it grows wild really in Ethiopia, um, primarily in Ethiopia in Africa. And what uh, there are some wonderful stories about, you know, one day a guy is grazing his goats and he sees his goats enjoying eating beans, blah, blah, blah. What we do know, I think, is that sometime around probably the 1450s, the coffee, dried coffee fruits started being exported from Ethiopia to Yemen. So they shipped over um, the Red Sea 
which actually is not that far. Uh, and the reason for that is because a Yemeni um, sort of scholar, um, a, a Sufi, uh, has seen the way that Ethiopians would be using coffee to create this beverage uh, that they would call Kisha. And this is really using the dried coffee fruits and you kind of, you know, you use uh, hot water and you create a bit of a, a, a drink with that. And that they wanted to use in their religious ceremonies um, where they use a potion uh, which they had called Kawa um, to help them really get into um, a trance and would both keep them awake because um, Sufi ceremonies last uh, through the night uh, and at the same time enable them to have energy and go into this sort of trance-like thing, give them a bit of a buzz if you like. So this is the first time that we see coffee kind of appearing as coffee. We know that the people in Ethiopia probably used it in many different ways. Uh, and use the plant. They would forage the plant. So at this time, all that coffee is foraged. But within about a hundred years or so, uh, in Yemen is actually growing coffee on its own, uh, and then exporting that coffee uh, through the port of Mocha. So Mocha, of course, has become this very famous name in coffee history, uh, and, and the, the 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 port is a port called Al Mokher, and and it was abbreviated by Europeans to Mocha. So the start of coffee as a beverage is around that sort of 1450s, 1500s uh, point. Okay. And I, I personally hadn't thought of it having that, that long history. But how does it move from EPO, Ethiopia and Yemen into, into Europe? Yeah, so again, what happens is that um, Yemen comes under the influence ultimately of the Ottoman Empire and um it moved coffee usage kind of moves up with people through the empire so it moves up through the arabian peninsula it moves to egypt then it moves into uh turkey to istanbul uh, modern day turkey as it were to, to one day istanbul and um becomes known to european travelers who see that trade and those uh, companies that are known at the time as kind of East India companies, the ones that are, are kind of mercantile companies uh, for, with monopolies in European trading, start acquiring coffee from the port of, of Mocha and bringing it into Europe. And so it get, begins to get adopted by Europeans. And so that really starts in the 1600s. Uh, the first coffee house in Europe, which incidentally actually opens in the UK and almost certainly is the one that opens in London in 1652. Um, that's the sort of the point at which coffee dry drinking is becoming established as a kind of a social, social thing. And then by the time we get to the 18th century, the 1700s, um, Europeans are drinking quite substantive amounts of coffee. And that's the point at which uh, Europeans begin to uh, they acquire coffee plants and plant them in their colonies. So the Dutch in Java, uh, the French, the British, the Spanish in the Caribbean. Okay. And I'd like to unpack the point there about it is spreading across Europe. Are they, are they all producing yeah. the same types of coffees? Are they making slightly different coffees? 
No, at that time, really, the I mean, all the coffee is um, originally, as we said, coming from mocha. So it's the same sort of source coffee. And it is being brewed in pretty much the way that we would now think of a Turkish coffee as being brewed. So with that uh, that small little uh, jug that we call, uh, is actually known technically as a yetzva, but which we usually call an ebrick, uh, where you kind of, you know, boil it up. It's this very uh, dark, thick uh, beverage that you, you know, serve into very small cups. And that's reproduced. In fact, one of the reasons why it spreads is that in Europe, uh, there is this fad for these sort of Turkish, uh, you know, Turkish delicacies, Turkish um, kind of exoticism, if you like. Many of the early coffee house owners actually used to dress as Turks yeah. in order to serve their coffee. So the um, that's the sort of the initial thing. So at that point, the coffee is really pretty much the same. And the big things that begin to happen in Europe are really at that point more about the things that get added to coffee, um, sugar, uh, again, coming largely from from the plantations, from the, the plantation colonies, and um, also milk. And milk, obviously, is European itself. And um, so we know that, for example, France, um, there was a big thing about, you know, making what, what um, café au lait uh, becomes very much. I mean, that's not really something that you would get in the Middle East. So it's uh, this kind of, you know, using our own cows and our own milk to kind of moderate the coffee um so that's the sort of the first big thing but at that point pretty much coffee is the same throughout europe and and the sort of the way that it changes is over time as brewing methods change and then a little bit as the ways that coffee drinking the uses of coffee drinking change and you know i, I really i personally really like black coffee and seeing that introduction of a european um, style of adding milk into that coffee is quite interesting. And, and then the fact that the Eastern cultures don't really do that either. But, you know, you touched on a point earlier that it was people were starting to drink this coffee socially um, in coffee houses. Now, as as we see in society, we have different drinks, which people tend to attribute to different classes. Uh, was was yeah. coffee, a, you know, a middle class or a working class drink? Or was it just purely consumed socially? Um, no, so coffee is really very much uh, a, a middle class, a kind of a bourgeois drink in the first place. It's very much a business person's drink, actually, a kind of mercantile professional drink. So in those early coffee houses, the big distinction, particularly in, in the UK, is, you know, these are places where you, where people are drinking coffee rather than alcohol. So it's a big new thing. And in fact, all three hot beverages, as we think about them, tea, coffee, chocolate, all come in around this time and they're all transformational because until up that point really what people are drinking nearly all the time is kind of watered down very watered down alcoholic fermented drinks so uh that's quite transformational it starts very much at that higher level partly because it's kind of you know a luxury drink uh and obviously the sources are very limited uh partly because it's seen as this is a great thing over which to now meet in coffee houses and do business with like-minded people. So a lot of coffee houses become places in which similar kinds of people hang out. Um, so um, the coffee house, which which splendidly known as Jonathan's, is the place in which the stock exchange is met. You know, lots of people are selling shops to one another. 
uh, what we now think of the Lloyd's shipping insurance market. That's where shipping brokers was originally based in a coffee house again. Um, and then different things like scientific societies, the Royal Society was originally based in the Grecian coffee house. So these were places in which people knew, well, people like me, if you like, go and I can swap information or swap knowledge or swap uh, political gossip or whatever. And um, this was a kind of, you know, a form of networking. So in that sense, it was very social, but it's very specific as well. Where it begins to change is that um, by, I suppose, really by the sort of the mid 1770s, that becomes a more a widespread drink coffee in particularly uh, certain regions of continental Europe. And that's because some people are using it as a way of stimulation to continue working. So the the people that we can think of, like the weavers in Flanders, for example, so in the Low Countries, uh, are known to have drunk coffee whilst they were actually sat at their looms uh, because you could have this coffee, you could have it as a hot drink, you can kind of turn that into your meal and it kind of keeps you going and, and sort of gets you going. And so you don't lose out in terms of at that point, people are doing mostly piecework, yeah? So you're being paid by the amount you produce not by the number of hours that you work. So you want to keep working in order to keep producing more and more. And coffee becomes, you know, kind of goes down the classes that way. That doesn't happen in the UK because in the UK, we really, tea is the version of that. So people talk a lot about tea in the industrial revolution. And of course the point is then again, when we talked about those additives to coffee, if you throw in milk and sugar, suddenly you've got calories in there as well as warmth, as well as the stimulating qualities from the caffeine. So it's giving you sort of several different boosts all at once. And it's, it's interesting to see how those, those ideas, those features of coffee consumption are, are still here today. Uh, we tend to still drink coffee to push us through the day. Um, I've certainly used it to push me through my teaching day as well. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we have the rise of America at this, at this point and, and America keeps growing. How does America start to influence the way people are consuming their coffee and, and what changes does it introduce? Cause there are some things we tend to think as being quintessentially American as opposed to those European ideas. Yeah, so I think that the point about America is America becomes the first big mass market for coffee. And that transforms coffee from being something in Europe, if you were getting coffee, you would buy it from your grocer, you'd buy it loose, you, there wouldn't be any branding on it or whatever. And you'd almost certainly end up roasting the coffee yourself. Uh, in America, what happens is for the first time you get a market with a branded coffee product and with people becoming, you know, whole businesses of coffee roasting and sort of putting out coffee in packaging. So the first big names in coffee are all American names. And what's happening there is that market is being massively expanded. And at the same time, the Americans are getting cheaper and cheaper coffee from Brazil. And it's a kind of a, a, a virtuous circle, if you like, in economically speaking, uh, because as long as the Brazilians can hold down the price, then they can export more and more coffee. So that enables them to recoup the value. And for America, that creates a bigger and bigger market because if the price of coffee is relatively low, then more people can afford it. The two things that I think also influential there, one is that the um 
the American sort of market begins possibly with what happens during the American Civil War. I mean, a lot of people talk about the American Revolution as the moment that Americans adopt coffee, but I don't think that's necessarily true. It's true that they don't want to drink British tea anymore, and they throw it in the harbour famously at Boston, blah, 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 but they also don't want to drink British coffee. They'll drink tea or coffee from anybody, as long as it's not the Brits. But in the Civil War, uh, one of the things that the generals on the Union side realise is that if they give their troops a lot of coffee during the day, then this will keep their troops happy. It will also keep them alert and it will do all those other things that we were talking about as being beneficial in the workplace. But of course, massively more so if you've got a gun by your side and you have to be continual on alert. So you give people coffee before they go into battle. You make sure they get coffee at the end of each day. And it seems like from the rations that we see that you probably as an American Union soldier would have got about something like 10 cups of coffee a day. Now that's a lot of coffee. Um, and really what that creates is a whole kind of pent up demand for coffee because once the civil war is over and then really, you know, you've got all these people who have been exposed to coffee who want to continue drinking coffee. And then we have the sort of the coincidence of that with the expansion of America. So a lot of the people who go homesteading or go over on the wagons or go out as cowboys, as it were, all of these people are using coffee and use coffee products. And again, the fact that you can have these branded products, which are sold as also, you know, long lasting, etc., um, means that there is a big market for out there. Uh, and that creates this whole new thing whereby, whereas before, as I said, you know, you, you just had like your local grocer might roast your coffee or you most likely you would roast your own coffee. Now you've got the development of, in effect, factories roasting coffee uh, and the first big names and big brands. So Ariosa, which is a, a brand from Arbuckles in Pennsylvania, is the first sort of really big mass coffee. Um I should say one thing about this, by the way, which is just to go back to that point about Brazil and indeed about Europe, that we have to remember that the way that Brazil kept its um, prices very low were, were two things that are, are pretty terrifying seen from today. One is that, uh, of course, that the, uh, the, the price of labour is kept very low initially by slavery and then by various forms of unfree labour, same in, in the European cases. And uh, the second is environmentally, because the way that um, coffee production was so expanded was simply to kind of, you know, burn down the forests, plant them with, plant the land with coffee into the ashes. And when your um, land starts to uh, become bad in terms of yield, then you just go and grab a bit more land from, from the forests. So you can imagine the kind of the ecological implications of this are, 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 are very negative. But that's the way really that coffee becomes established. And I think again, the final point for, for America is that when you have that big phase of also uh, European migration to America, um, a lot of those people from Europe, people uh, who are leaving with very little but who have, as it were, the dream. And part of that dream is to have regular access to coffee. So the idea of daily consumption of coffee for all classes, that's very much starts in America. Uh, the idea that coffee becomes an everyday product, literally everyday product, as opposed to say something you drank on a good Sunday.
Yeah, and I guess again, it's it's really interesting to see those those ideas still continuing today. Um, the deforestation uh, to help with you know, uh, the consumption or the production of goods, and coffee being an everyday working drink for people to carry on with their jobs. Now we've looked at consumption of coffee within war. Um, how does how does war affect the consumption of coffee elsewhere and the production of coffee? Because uh, from this period, probably from the Civil War onwards, uh, the Americas and Europe and at points of the world are consumed by war. Yeah, well, so I think the, uh, the, the parallel, if you like, for the American Civil War and the next step is the First World War. And during the First World War, we see a lot of the armies using coffee in that same way. So not just the Americans, who obviously come in later, but also the Germans, uh, the Italians. So a lot of uh, a lot of Italians' first exposure to coffee is is during that First World War period. And again, it's the sort of the what happens is that you know, well, how do you get this coffee to people? So you've got all kinds of weird things. You know, the Italians issue coffee grinders as part of their <laughs> sort of uh, battalion equipment, which is wonderful. Uh, the Americans worked very hard on creating the first forms of what they would call soluble coffee, which we now think of as instant coffee. Uh, and that was sort of issued to their troops. The other thing to say is that Brazil comes into the First World War and uh, on the, obviously on the, on the Allied side. Uh, one of the reasons for that is because some of its, uh, you know, this is the disruption to its coffee trade. And the other, I think, really is almost that it feels the need to be associated with America in order to get, American assistance with dealing with managing the uh, the coffee trade during wartime because there's obviously much more difficult for them to actually get coffee to the civilians. So the um, ways that war affects that, if you like, are one, a growth of the market, but two, also quite a growth of the sort of the solutions for coffee brewing and the ways that coffee can be, and coffee product and coffee brewing can be sort of um, extended. And I think we see that sort of quite significantly across really the whole of the American and European frontier at that point. And some of those advancements that they're making during the war, you know, the American instant coffees, how are they affecting, you know, public consumption of coffee? How are they pushing more brands or more types of coffee on people? Yeah. So, I mean, I think actually the first thing you've, you, you fit on is the right one, which is brands. Because certain, because this is the point in the interwar period where also Europe begins to develop its coffee brands, and with its coffee brands, also begins to develop a little bit of the different ways of drinking coffee, uh, the different notions of what is, you know, what does our coffee taste like as opposed to your coffee? What are the ways that you produce it as opposed to we produce it? So, just as the Americans develop more and more, really, um, the kind of uh, what we would call pour over coffee. Uh, so the kind of, you know, the big jugs, the relatively thin tasting coffee, which is also a product of it coming from, from Brazil. Um, then other European nations are developing different ways of drinking coffee, uh, shorter coffee drinks in the Mediterranean, the ways that um, different sort of preparation modes, but also, the, the, again, this association that, you know, Italian coffee tastes different from German coffee, tastes different from Scandinavian coffee, that they each have their own ways of doing the beverage. 
So that's quite important. And then when we come on to that point about soluble drinks, then that's really where that changes it and becomes a game changer in terms of what we would call instant coffee. That's just after the Second World War, because the same thing happens um, essentially during the Second World War the American army becomes the testing ground for what is effectively becomes after the war Nescafe. So Nescafe was uh, developed in the thirties, uh, but it's sort of perfected around 1938. Uh, and then uh, the Swiss company effectively sort of runs that through the American army. So it's sort of kept out of Europe and it actually brought back into Europe by the Americans. So that's when, for example, the British start having their, I was about to say their love affair with uh, instant coffee and the instant coffee becomes like the British way of drinking coffee. So instant coffee for most of the 20, the second half of the 20th century is sort of, you know, 80, 90% of what's drunk in Britain. And, and you can very much see still see that on supermarket shelves where the vast majority of styles of coffee are instant coffee. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. And those big brands, which are, you know, become sort of, you know, um, iconic almost. Yeah. So if, if Britain decides to have that love affair, as you say, with, with instant coffee, how are, how are different countries consuming their coffees then? Well, so you'll get, I mean, that's of, of, so the instant segment is very different from say the segment, uh, in the Mediterranean where you're seeing sort of the, the, the growth of espresso based coffee and the, the home brew versions of that. And in Germany, where you're seeing really sort of filter coffee, Scandinavia, where similarly sort of filter coffee, but drunk as very small coffees, almost Turkish style. And again, different origins. So, um, a lot of the European countries drink coffees that have a significant component from their colonial or, or ex-colonial uh, countries in them. So the big change there is the rise of a bean called Robusta. Uh, so um, all the coffee we've talked about at this time, it comes from that same species that we saw, the original species growing in Ethiopia, which ironically is called Arabica because, as we said, it really first comes to knowledge in Yemen. Uh, but then Robusta coffee is a, a new style of coffee, again, comes uh, from Africa, uh, really from Congo. It's a, a sort of a harsher, but but a high, higher yielding and um, easier to grow, basically, uh, being and a lot of those countries that um, grow Robusta are part of uh, usually part of the French Empire. And um, the French, for example, become very high robusta consumers uh, as a result of that. So I'm thinking of countries like uh, Ivory Coast, for example. Um, so you're seeing that kind of difference. I, the reason I was thinking about that is because I'll give you an example of a, a difference there. If you think about uh, Scandinavia, very little robusta in their coffee because they didn't have those colonial connect, uh, connections. They tend to be Arabica importing uh, uh, countries. And, and what might just what might be the taste difference between an arabica and a robusta? Uh, a robusta tastes much stronger. It tastes uh, in late terms. It tastes much stronger. It tastes somewhat burnt, somewhat earthier. Um, depending on how rude you want to be, you could say you know the people will say robusta tastes like burnt rubber or chewing a pencil or something like that. <laughs> 
but that's the sort of thing that you put in, can put into instant coffee because if you roast these things very dark if you roast robusta dark then that kind of means that what you're drinking is not really the quality of the coffee you're drinking the quality of the roast so if you like dark roasted coffee usually that dark roasted coffee has a robusta element to it because the way that you kind of sweeten it off it's a bit like roasting your doing your um sunday roast you know if you think about it if you you caramelize your roast yeah all the crackling on top of it then ultimately the flavor is the crackling not the meat and that's sort of what's going on with with, with um roasting robusta Okay, because I've I've never I've never looked at it as there will be different tastes right. these different beans. It's very interesting. Okay, so uh, a quick sort of uh, basic thing for you to try, Jackson, is just go yeah. down to your local supermarket, buy a basic instant coffee or a basic coffee blend, and then buy one that says hundred percent arabica, and they're not, you know, that you'll taste the difference. Yeah, okay, it, 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 you will. Yeah, I'll certainly try that. I've uh, I've yeah. been trying Percol recently against Nescaf, that's uh, the work provider coffee, and I've yeah, I definitely prefer, prefer my Percol. So, well, I'm going to get. I I think, and I, I could be wrong, so I'm I'm not going to guarantee it. I mean, I think both of them will have some robusta in them, but you'll find that what that probably the Percol has less. Uh, but. Um, yeah, have a look for one that's labelled 100% Arabica, and you will taste a difference. Oh, um, I should, try that, I should so. say, as a as a coffee person, I should also say, you know, just go to go into a coffee shop and uh, go to one of these sort of you know specialty coffee shops and just ask for almost any single origin coffee because it will be 100% Arabica, and you'll get a real difference there. Okay, I'll certainly I'll certainly try that myself. <laughs> um, now, one one central theme throughout all of this, I see, is the history of, and, cer and certainly from your research as well, the history of coffee in Italy. So wh why is Italy yeah. so important to the history of coffee? Well, Italy is very important for, for two main reasons, if you like. First of all, Italy is, is probably the place that coffee first came into Europe through. So, I mean, obviously the Venetian Empire traded a lot with the Ottoman Empire, and we're pretty certain that coffee came through into Venice and into the Venetian Empire quite early on, uh, and uh, possibly around the 1600s. Certainly, it's being sold uh, in the, in Venice in the 1630s. Um, so that's its sort of original claim. But then the real distinctiveness about Italy is the development of what's called espresso. And the espresso beverages around it so that's you know italian espresso is, is the fundamental contribution um and that's from the first well we can we can we can go deep into this but the first sort of machines that call themselves espresso machines are in the early 20th century there, there are some patented a little before that but let's just talk about what espresso means and what espresso means in essence is the process of brewing under pressure so what you're doing is brewing a more concentrated beverage under pressure and you use the pressure to extract the coffee quicker and more efficiently um so from the beginning of the 20th century there's a big division between the re the reason this takes place is really because there's a division between how do you address the problem of serving people 
coffee in a coffee shop or a coffee uh, bar of that kind of thing, uh, a lot of people quickly. Now, the way that America and um, probably Northern Europe deal with that issue is, well, you brew a bulk load of coffee, you stick it in a coffee urn and you just sort of open the tap as and when you need to give somebody a cup of coffee. So if you like, um, it's not actually a vacuum flask, but it's like having a huge vacuum flask. Yeah. Okay. The Italian approach is, well, what about if we made everybody their own cup of coffee from fresh? So in order to achieve that, you need to be able to do it quicker. And that's really where the espresso comes in. So it's like, yeah, each time we grind the coffee and we brew you a coffee. So it brew it, uh, the, the, one of the derivations of the word espresso is expressly for you is, is the idea. So it's like, yeah, you get your fresh coffee. Uh, but obviously I've got to do that quickly and I've got to speed up the process. So over the course of the century, the way that that's done has evolved significantly. So the first espresso machines in the first half of the 20th century are these big sort of tank boiler type things that, you know, stand vertically on coffee bars and look huge, but really what they're using is essentially steam pressure. So they are creating a kind of more concentrated version of a filter coffee, really. Uh, in terms of the taste, the taste would taste like that. It, it almost wouldn't be that different from a, a Turkish coffee, say. Um, but in the 1950s, then a new thing happens whereby um, inventions sort of really started with Akili Gadja, who produced this sort of um, machines that could brew under high pressures, you know, uh, and basically the pressure becomes standardized at about nine bars of pressure. And so this creates the crema on top of the espresso. So that's that kind of mousse of oils that you see. So if you look at your espresso, just have an espresso, you'll see on the top of it, there's a little mousse, a little covering that we call crema. And that's kind of the characteristic of what we think of as espresso today. So all of the evolution of that happens in Italy. Every stage of that process comes through Italian companies, Italian innovators, and they're obviously producing this for the Italian market in the in the first case, and that expands into sort of similar markets. But uh, that's the kind of, in a nutshell, that's why espresso, you know, Italian espresso is so distinctive. Um, it's a whole new form of brewing. And I, I quite like the different approaches, the way the the Americans and the North Europeans decide to make their coffee. Uh, and how the Italians do as well. I think it, it definitely shows cultural differences within the two. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's, you know, it goes bigger than that in the sense that therefore, you know, Europe tends to have, Europe and certainly America have bigger cuts. Yeah, because of course that, that brewing system works for, for bigger and for the sense that, you know, this is, here's your value because I'm giving you more coffee. Whereas the sort of the Mediterranean thing is, here's your value because I'm giving you a concentrated shot of energy. Um. And then there are a lot of social things that develop around that. So the difference between going out for a coffee in America, 
go out, sit down, drink your coffee, have it brought to you by the waitress, probably have another one because it's the perpetual, you know, diner coffee where it's like you can just have as much coffee as you like, uh, as opposed to the Italy walk-in, espresso, drink, gone, you know, quick shot, standing up, stand-up beverage. Yeah, it's kind of kind of how we approach energy drinks like Red Bull and so yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> now, now, something you, you you touch upon in your research is something called the Cappuccino Conquest. So yeah, what, what what is this this conquest? So that was my way of explaining that actually the way that Italian espresso achieved its um, spread abroad, and now you know we've now reached a point where something like well over ninety five percent of espresso machines in Italy are made for export and over the, you know, well over the majority of coffee roasted in Italy is now exported as espresso coffee. Uh, so how did that happen? Well, it's not actually about people drinking espresso. It's about people drinking other beverages at the base of espresso and cappuccino is probably the original one, the one that, we, that is most associated with that spread. Uh, and so for me, you know, you can capture the distinctiveness of this sort of transnational history by, by thinking of a cappuccino congress, even though in Italy, nearly everyone is drinking espresso. Cappuccino is famously a beverage that you only ever have for breakfast. You know, you don't have a cappuccino after 10, 30 or 11 usually. Um, so, and actually, you know, there, there, there's some very interesting things about Italians, milk, uh, cappuccino, the whole, the whole thing in the sense that it, it absolutely follows this thing of Italy having very, very diverse regional cultures too. So the thing to remember about cappuccino is actually arguably it originates in Austria in the Habsburg empire, because the original notion of cappuccino is that the cappuccino is color. And the color is the color that you get of a certain blend of coffee to milk. And that color looks the same color as the robes of a cappuccino monk. Uh, but in Austria, this was called cappuccina. So you would go and order a cappuccina. That seems to have translated to Italy, to Austria, Hungary's Italian possessions, uh, most notably Trieste. And, um, the whole notion of using milk, as we say, Italians are a bit so-so about milk. They, they are wary of drinking milk. Milk is seen as a kind of a beverage that sits on your stomach. And there's a, actually, fascinatingly, I, there's quite a genetic variation here that Italians are more lactose intolerant. And the more you go to the south of Italy, the more lactose intolerant they become. Um, now, there are other good reasons for that. You don't really produce much, certainly not much cow's milk in um, the south, southern Mediterranean because, you know, that that's really a goat milk area. So you, you don't really graze cows there. Um, but it fits to these other things that we also see regionally about espresso beverages too in Italy, that um, the south drinks its coffee even shorter than the north. And it tends to be coffee with the kind, you know, they, they talk about the taste. It tends to be darker coffee. It tends to be shorter coffee. It tends to be made with much more sugar. So you quite often put the sugar in before you actually put the coffee on the 
top of the sugar, as it were. You kind of do it that way round. Um, so you can almost draw a map of Italy based on coffee preferences um, and the way that they drink coffee and the kinds of things that are in their coffee. So it's a fascinating kind of example of the regionality of, of Italy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how, how different places develop their own styles. We have it in you know, sports, we have it in you know, coffee, yeah. um, and, even, and even in tea as well in in england so it's yeah you know, i quite like looking at those those cultural and regional yeah. differences no absolutely yeah absolutely i don't know if you've ever heard the expression um banal nationalism or banal yeah i think it's banal nationalism so yeah. i mean coffee is a perfect example of that you know it's it's one of those things that we do day to day but it is something that's very specific to our particular regions and cultures um so Having said that, I'm going to blow that up a bit for you now, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because that's of right. course the thing that follows on that is while that's true, what's really happened with the cappuccino conquests and the spread of Italian coffee around the world is that that sort of um, supersedes a lot of our, you know, a lot of those cultural differences. So you know now when you think about going, I mean, if you think about the UK. Um, you know, the, the standard coffee beverages in the UK are all based on espresso. If you go out of the house, you know, you wouldn't, it, it would be unusual now for you to order a coffee in any kind of cafe and not be offered a kind of cappuccino latte type beverage. Um, whereas, yeah, and... whereas, you know, go back 30, 40 years and those would all be basically, you know, if you ordered a coffee outside in a cafe, an ordinary cafe, you're pretty much likely to get basically um, an instant coffee again. And it's, it's interesting to see that homogenous coffee culture arising. And do, do the, do Italians and Italian immigrants have a, have an impact on that homogeny? Um, yes, in a way they do. I mean, I think this is a, this is an interesting story. Certainly there's a lot of association. So, the first, there's a particular period around the 50s, as we said, with the gadget machine, you know, there's quite, a, it becomes quite exotic again, the cappuccino, whatever. I was watching um, actually um, a short movie yesterday on, on the 1950s in London, full of these kind of, you know, coffee houses with everyone drinking supposed cappuccinos, etc. It's a real uh, weird period because these these coffee places became um, places, particularly for young people to hung out, they became sort of artist places. They became above all associated with jukeboxes. And the idea was that the coffee bar was trendy and the pub was where your parents went. You know, you didn't <laughs> want to go to the pub. That's where you might meet your mum and dad or some guy in a flat cap drinking their bitter or whatever. Whereas, you know, you'd have these, these, uh, so-called frothy coffees. And a lot of the people driving that, I mean, it was, Italian emigres, not necessarily uh, ones who'd come over just then, but quite often, I mean, there's a, there's a long history of, it, of Italian migrants in, in the UK being heavily involved in hospitality, and that's similar in other countries too. And they obviously cottoned on to this new phenomena from Italy of, you know, cappuccino, espresso, coffee, the use above all of, the, of what we would call the steam wand on the coffee machine to make what was called throffy coffee. 
And um, this became quite a trendy thing. So in that, the Italians had a big role. Um, and that also led to some of the oddities uh, that we see. So the Americano, famously, you know, the Americano is not really anything anyone drinks in Italy. And it, it certainly doesn't have any of the... the um, uh, the uh, sort of um, cachet, I was about to say, of, of what yeah. it has here. You know, here the Americano sounds sophisticated. There the Americano is like, what do we give some American who says, I want more coffee than that? You know, and it's like, <laughs> throw some hot water on the espresso. Um, and that sort of evolves more and more in those foreign markets. And as I say, the, you know, the cappuccino does in this very different way. Uh, but Italians are very entrepreneurial and um, Italian emigrants are very entrepreneurial. If they see something that, you know, can be used as a symbol of Italian identity, then they're going to do that and, and put that forward. Um, and that very much is that sort of first phase of expansion is like that. Obviously, what changes is the sort of the more recent phase, uh, which is really about repositioning, I say, coffee as a, as a beverage per se. We talked a lot about how coffee's become an everyday beverage. But, of course, what happened in terms of uh, the cappuccino conquests was that the coffee house, again, from the mid-'90s, um, really a bit earlier in America, becomes a new sort of more sophisticated place and coffee becomes more sophisticated and, and the espresso cappuccino and then the beverages like the Americano, but also of course, famously the latte, the cafe latte, which really is not a beverage in Italy and certainly not a, not an, a, not a bar beverage, um, are kind of used as, as sophisticated beverages premium beverages, beverages where, okay, you need somebody like a barista to make that. You need a big coffee machine with all the bells and whistles to make it. So in the end, they can underpin a, a bigger sort of format revolution, which is that of the, if you like, the Starbucks style coffee chains, where you can make a really nice coffee shop somewhere where people could go and sit and yak and generally not be harassed and where you know you and i now might wait you know let's face it if, if you and i agree to meet in person which would be lovely we're probably going to do it in a coffee shop and um those things can be paid for all the sort of additional attractions of that coffee shop can be paid for provided i can charge you enough for your coffee and of course <laughs> those kinds of co you know italian style coffees are clearly something that by and large we don't do at home that convey a sense of value and that therefore can be priced as a, a you know at a point where you can take quite a lot of profit out of it the irony being in italy coffee in a bar is extremely cheap and really difficult to make a profit on which is why there weren't for a long time any coffee chains in italy itself um, and I, I certainly agree with the fact that we we would meet in a coffee coffee shop for a coffee uh, and this globalization that you're talking about of of coffee and the globalization of its consumption is the production changing um so 
the production has almost the production of coffee has a different history it's expanded a great deal so we have more coffee being produced than ever what we've seen from this revolution is actually a transformation in consumption we think about it as the transformation in our consumption in the sort of you know developed world economies as it were but actually the real transformation now is in other markets so asia has really gone mad for coffee in a way that it never used to and that's really as sort of asia develops as an economy it's also become very westernized this is the aspirational western thing to do drink coffee so countries that used to basically produce coffee but not often drink that much coffee should apply to most of asia to uh, even to, to most of latin america uh, and indeed to most of africa the the exception being ethiopia now are actually themselves generating a substantial coffee culture uh, and that's what's really growing the market for coffee and the production front as i say is quite different history in the sense that at the very time uh around for example the 2000s that this transformation was taking place we had an absolute disaster in the production market because the price dropped so low it was basically below the cost of production uh, so for four years straight basically the price of green coffee was less than a dollar a pound and at that a pound as in pound weight and at that point actually it's simply you know no matter how hard you try you're not making money on your coffee so the other elements of things that we've seen grow the rise of fair trade the rise of all these certificates around coffee and now the rise of lots of people talking about sustainability in coffee and so forth and giving much more information about their coffee uh comes out of that basic problem in in the world of production which is too much coffee um too much coffee too little consumption and now that as i said is beginning to be addressed as much if not more by the rising consumption as by changes in production and you know that that change in that change in culture and the change in price uh, must really be affecting these coffee and growing company uh, countries how does that how does that affect them well the ch the problem with the price is it's very volatile yeah so for example, as I say, in that crisis of the 2000s, and again, we had something similar coming along in the sort of the, the mid-20s, uh, then it's, you see people leaving coffee. So one thing that's very clear with coffee farmers is it's an older person's business. Younger people often don't go into coffee. The average age for a coffee farmer in, say, Colombia or in Kenya is probably about 56, 57. Um, so there wasn't enough economic incentive to con uh, to continue producing um the other issue in coffee is obviously climate change and that that's going to become a big issue because uh one of the reasons why uh robusta became more prominent in the in the world markets now about 35 percent 40 percent is uh because it's that much more resistant to high temperatures um, but also because it's easier to grow, one of the disruptions in the world market was the rise from nowhere of the country growing Robusta and that country is Vietnam. So Vietnam 
even in the 1990s, was not a very big coffee producer. Right now, Vietnam is the second biggest coffee producer in the world after Brazil. Uh, that's a lot more coffee and a lot of cheap coffee. Not necessarily a great return for the Vietnamese, but it, it's a great return for their government. And that, you know, there, there are a lot of difficulties when we start talking about this in terms of the differences between the attractiveness of coffee production on a state level and what actually gets back to the people who grow the coffee. Um, so we're seeing really a lot of issues around how do we create a stable, steady market. Right now, incidentally, the price for coffee, green coffee, is very is uh, quite high. And the reason for that is because for two years in a row, Brazil has had a relatively low coffee harvest. And once that happens, then there's less, you know, then the, the balance of the market changes. And it's changed quite considerably. Um, but that is still, you know, the problem is how to make that less volatile, more uh, reliable so that people can be assured of getting an income and that we can assure ourselves of a, of a steady supply of coffee. And it's a, it's a definitely a difficult act to have to balance, uh, ensuring people can have a livelihood and that the consumption levels can continue on a sustainable level. Now, yeah. I have a final fun question. Oh, yeah, no, go on. Sorry. Sorry. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had a, I have a final fun question for you, Jonathan, as we do for everyone on the history of Jackson podcast. Now, obviously you are a coffee connoisseur, an internationally renowned coffee expert, certainly a, a leader in your field in the history of coffee. What are the three best experiences that your research has led you to or taken you to? Wow. Well, that, I've got to say it's, I've had loads of brilliant experiences, Jackson. So I'm going to concentrate on some of the experiences that are the most unusual for a historian to have, if you okay. like. <laughs> uh, so uh, one is that I've become a judge of quite a few things. Um, and I can tell you that's quite intimidating at times because you obviously, yeah, you know, my imagine. knowledge is a very different set of knowledge, but I'm a judge of the best new product in show awards for the specialty coffee association, which is fascinating because I see new products, but I often see products that actually have a history to them or that you can relate back to history. So I saw this year, uh, for example, there was a, a, a sort of an innovative coffee brewer that really was actually turning the Colombian traditional way of brewing coffee into something that could brew coffee of a specialty quality, uh, just a coffee jug, but it was brilliant. You know, I thought that was fantastic what they'd done. And so you can see those kinds of issues. So that's one complete, you know, I would never have expected to be doing that as a historian. That sounds like an yeah. amazing experience. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, the a second one would be going to factories and talking to people in factories often. So this is a very Italian thing because um, initially they often have a, you know, a lot of businesses are, are quite old and family owned and they often have somebody that they call the, the historic memory of the business. 
And I've spent a lot of time interviewing historic memories and going around factories with them and then pointing things out and how things are done and what they used to be like and how did you do that. And, and I would never have understood most of what I do if I hadn't had that opportunity. And again, that's, a, you know, it's like you wouldn't get that from studying in an archive. You get other things and you begin to understand what you then see in an archive, but without it, it would have been impossible. So that I've had brilliant, I mean, to just cite one person who you will have heard of, I think, or will know the name. So um, I met um, a man that we would call Mr. Ely. So Ely Cafe, which is a really, really famous uh, coffee shop. And I met the most famous of the of the Ely's, uh, who unfortunately is, is no longer with us, but was an absolutely amazing guy to talk to and, and so passionate, you know, so that, that was fantastic. Uh, and the third, and, and the last one I'll say is that I've begun now because of doing global histories to be more involved in coffee at, at production, going out to coffee producing countries. I've been working recently with a coffee, uh, with a, an, another historian, uh, in Uganda. And, um, again, that's just totally eye opening. And that's what I mean about the transformation of what this kind of doing this kind of history can do for you because obviously you know never would i have as a historian of italy and the 20th century got out to uganda to be doing work as it were and um <laughs> it's it's just brilliant to to do that so all of those things i mean those, those are all really fun new ways of thinking new ways so you know yeah i just absolutely love it so yeah, I'm very happy to be a coffee yeah. historian. They sound like three really amazing uh, experiences and, and opportunities. And as any historian, you'd always imagine as your your career being in an archive, not going out to Uganda and meet meeting people such as the Ely family. I think that's I think they're just amazing experiences. I am in awe of your <laughs> of your experience. <laughs> now, if our if our listeners want to, to learn more and read more about the history of coffee, uh, what can they go away and read and listen to? Well, uh, very helpful that you ask. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I've written a book called Coffee, A Global History. Uh, it's actually, uh, if I may say so, very cheaply priced. Uh, so it's a nice little pocket book. And um, I would be very happy if your listeners would go away and find that. Um, it's, I think, under 12 quid, and probably you can find it for quite a lot less than that as well. Uh, and if you want to listen, um, I did a podcast series uh, last year, uh, which you'll be able to find on the internet very easily from any um, good podcast place. And it is called A History of Coffee, A History of Coffee Podcast. Uh, and um, again, that's that's fairly easy to find. Uh, it's on Apple, it's on Google, it's it's everywhere that you need. Uh, and if I can say, uh, you know, the easiest way to find any of this stuff, if you want to find out more about my work and about links to those things, is just to find me on Twitter or Instagram, and I'm at Coffee History JM. Oh, fantastic! And I will make sure the links to your book and your podcast, which is a truly fantastic podcast. I've learned so much from it. Um, are all in the description below so people can easily access them thanks, thanks thank you very much for coming on jonathan i really appreciate it and 
for everyone who has enjoyed, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please make sure to like, review uh, and rate this podcast episode and, and even tweet myself or Jonathan to let us know your thoughts. So thank you very much, guys. Thank you for listening. And thank you very much, Jonathan, for coming on. Mm-hmm.